Welcome to Mental Health News Radio. I'm your host, Kristen Sunanta-Walker. Just what are we going to discuss? The intimacy that is mental health. Let's continue to make it as comfortable as discussing brain health or heart health. This show has been on the air for several years and we have amazing co-hosts. And then we created a network of podcasters on mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com, a place where every possible facet of mental well-being can be talked about openly. My show, after several hundred interviews, the format is this. Intimate, deep, funny, touching, sometimes uncomfortable, but always vulnerable conversations with interesting people. The goal is to have you, our listening family, many of you who have become my good friends, feel as though you are listening in on private conversations. Thank you for tuning in and becoming part of this amazing journey with me and now with our network of podcasters. Just knowing this podcast might be helping any of you realize you are not alone on this journey called being a human being makes doing this podcast worth every second. Good morning. This is Amy O'Neill, and I am here today with two very special guests, Kristen Walker, who many of you know, and Jamie Amo. And we are here today to have a conversation about what has been going on with the gun violence in our country over the last several weeks. To say the least, it is more than concerning and appears to be slipping out of the news. So we wanted to have an opportunity to talk about what's happening and why we think it's happening and how we can all be inspired to do what we can to make some headway with this crisis, which it's really become. So Kristen, although many of the listeners already know who you are, if you could just take a minute to introduce yourself. Sure, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, and um, and I'm glad that we're going to be able to share this on your show and mine, too. Um, for your listeners, I have a show called Mental Health News Radio, and it's been on the air for about as long as uh, people used to say, what's a podcast? That's how long it's been on the air. <laughs> and uh, I, also, <laughs> I also am the founder of Mental Health News Radio Network, where we have... Um, over 60 shows now uh, with different podcasters talking about all things mental health. And thankfully, Amy, you're one of them uh, with such an important topic. So I'm, I'm grateful that, you know, our text about what is going on, why is there such an uptick? Oh my gosh, turned into Jamie being here and us being able to do this show. Yes, it is definitely a conversation that we need to continue. And Jamie, if you could introduce yourself to the listeners. Sure. Um, my name's Jamie, and I don't come from a mental health professional background. Um, I just come from a gun violence survivor advocacy perspective. There's a huge intersection with mental health and gun violence survivors. I was at Columbine in 1999 when the shooting took place, so I'm almost 21 years into this and I'm seeing a lot of the same repeating patterns in our historic cycle and our new cycle. And that's what I think we need to talk about today is how we can break that. You are, thank you for being here first of all and sharing a little bit about yourself and being a Columbine survivor. You're one of the 
you know, unfortunate, fortunate survivors, but unfortunate victims of that terrible tragedy, which seems to be one of the events that brought gun violence more into the current spotlight. But if we go back in time a little bit, since 1982, um, one of the statistics I found is that there's been at least 115 mass shootings. And to put that in, in the U.S. and to put it into contrast, ABC News reported just last month that so far in 2019, there have been at least 21. And now we know in November, we've had several just over the last couple of days and weeks. So right. that number, that current statistic isn't even accurate as of today. <sighs> and again, to set the stage, um, I want to put a couple of statistics out there. If we look at some of the, the major events of our more recent time, El Paso, Texas, the Walmart, there were 22 deaths, many, many more injured. Sutherland Springs, which I believe just had their two-year commemoration mm-hmm. anniversary, 26 fatalities, many more injuries. Parkland, Florida, 14. Las Vegas was 58. That was October 1st, just also a few years ago. And I, I read this morning that one of their mm. victims who had been paralyzed actually died yesterday due to her injuries. So Yeah, 59. it's 59 now. I saw 59. that as well. It's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Orlando Pulse nightclub, 49 deaths. They're just beginning to talk about how they're going to have some kind of commemoration for their event. San Bernardino, 14. Sandy Hook, 27 deaths. Virginia Tech, 32. Columbine, 13. However, I believe you've lost some members of your community as well since then, correct? Uh, yeah, yeah, we had um, in the spring of 2000, two students murdered in an unrelated incident of gun violence. And we've had suicides um, as recently as um, this calendar year from Columbine survivors. Um, this, there's physical trauma that never heals, and then there's emotional trauma that never heals. Um, we have classmates who are still in and out of the hospital for their injuries 20 years later. Um, and people are easy to turn away from that because after 20 years, you tend to forget um, some of those details. And when we talk about these more recent ones, like we're seeing the survivors from El Paso, um, you know, coming out with their stories about what rehab has been like. Um, and that's just the beginning of their journey. We see Colin Goddard from Virginia Tech speak a lot about the impact in particular of just the lead in your body. And these are things that the news isn't talking about. People aren't talking about. Our legislatures aren't talking about. They're so focused on on keeping track of, like we all should, keeping track of the dates and the victims and holding them and their memory up, up in the front. But we're so inundated that we can't keep up with the aftermath. Right. The scary part is, to your point, we are inundated with what the the tragedy, right? The tragic event in and of itself. And then we get caught up in the stories of survival and the heroes, which we need. However, we're not talking about the longer term impact and the consequences that are long lasting to your point about, you know, having lead in your body. The woman who passed away last night from Las Vegas 
was paralyzed. And I read a quote where her sister talked about she never had value or joy in her life again. She just never even recovered from being tragically and traumatically paralyzed and then dying two years later of her injuries. So the physical long-term impact, as well as the emotional long-term impact and the psychological long-term impact. In addition to the trauma of every day waking up and reading the news that there's been another horrendous incident. Right. Another and another and another. Yeah. It's, it's becoming difficult even for those that are involved in this part of the world to, to keep looking sometimes. I mean, survivors have to stop looking sometimes to protect themselves. There's a numbness and there's not the media coverage that we once had. Do either of you have any ideas as to why that's happening? I think that some of it is just people don't want to hear. It's that typical human nature thing. They don't want to talk about things that are uncomfortable. I mean, that's at a base of anything. Um, People don't want to talk about things like that. And we're this uptick, this it's coming so hard and so fast that it's becoming normal, a normal part of our society. It isn't just reading it on the news and, oh, it's in that other country. You know, it's here. So there's a desensitization happening that I see because I'm someone that's out there just always talking, talking, talking about all this kind of stuff. And I'm used to being the person that stops dinner table conversation. Uh, <laughs> And I've been that my whole life with the things that I bring up that are important to me. And sometimes I am trying to do that very thing. Um, And sometimes I'm not. Sometimes I'm just saying, hey, well, I interviewed blah, 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 blah. And no one at the table, you know, they all kind of look at it stops dinner conversation, basically. And that's just my normal day. Um, But I'm used to being someone that other people feel uncomfortable around. So I'm sort of anesthetized to being that, but most everybody else isn't. So anyway, Jamie, that those are just my first two cents on that. I think um, those are both really good points because the average person doesn't have the the training or the necessarily the the use of the compassion to be able to dive in so deeply every day. Um, I think also. Another factor that's playing really heavily into why we're hearing less about the gun violence epidemic is because as the the House is proceeding with their impeachment inquiry, we have a news media that is constantly struggling to get the attention of its audience. And it's always been a tactic of whatever will get the most interaction is what's published. So like when we do have school shooting coverage, it's the pictures of the kids from Highlands Ranch, Colorado at the STEM school with their hands up in the air and they're crying. Those are the pictures that bring the clicks. So that's what they use. Well, what's happening now is yes, we're still having shooting after shooting day after day, nearly a hundred people are killed, 300 more are injured every day, but we have an impeachment inquiry that's eating up so much of the media's attention and the public's attention, and rightly so, because it's a very serious issue. 
but beyond that, we have a Senate that has refused to take action on any of the gun-related measures that have been passed by the House this calendar year. Um, I went to the State of the Union with my Congresswoman Madeline Dean in February. Um, I've been watching all year long. We've been talking to representatives. We've been talking to senators. Um, they just don't want to hear it either to the extent that um, a, a group of us survivors um, were fortunate to be included in a book called If I Don't Make It, I Love You, um, edited by Amy Archer and Lauren Kleinman Hanks. And we sent a copy of our book, our anthology, to all 100 senators. Mm -hmm. And we haven't received responses from any of them, acknowledgments mm -hmm. from any of them in regards to it. This is extremely unfortunate because in May, Senator Bob Casey introduced uh, a piece of legislation known as the Resources for Victims of Gun Violence Act. There's never been legislation like this before. It aims to establish a council to um, assess and address the needs of victims and survivors of gun violence. And in the Senate, the only two sponsors, aside from Senator Casey, are Kamala Harris and Amy Klobuchar, both of whom are running for president. Um, not a single other senator has signed on to sponsor this bill since May, despite receipt of this book, uh, no less. And even in the House, where we do have a gun sense majority, and we have a majority of people who are concerned with the mental health and well-being of their constituents, we're still only at 71 total sponsors. Um, so what we're seeing is this, this inability to care enough isn't just with our neighbors. It's not just with our local leaders. It's with our federal officials. They've been saturated by it too, because when you look back over the last 20 years, we've been stuck in the same cycle of tragedy, cry for action, promises of movement, and then it, it, the cycle interrupts there. And then there's another tragic event, and then there's more calls for action, there's more promises, and they halt there. We're to the point now that we don't even have the promises for action. How does that affect our, our progress in trying to prevent or reduce gun violence? How does that affect our process in trying to help survivors? It effectively squashes us. We can't do anything if no one will listen. And when people are choosing not to listen, Sometimes it's okay. Like as Amy said, sometimes you can't. Sometimes you have to take care of yourself and that's okay. But if these kinds of things aren't heavily traumatic for you and activate or, or set off flashbacks, this is something that people absolutely need to be talking about and raising attention to and not letting it slip away because the people who are affected the most are feeling such an incredible burnout. Um, which Amy mentioned too. Um, and I think Kristen, you said also that even people who are so used to this are running out of room for how to get up and keep going again. There was Absolutely. a great, there was a great article in the Philadelphia Inquirer by Helen Ubinas, who mm -hmm. spoke with several different types of gun violence activists and advocates. And that sentiment is pretty universal across the board is when you, we feel like there's nowhere to go, how do we keep going? And when we right. feel mm -hmm. like there's no one listening, then why do we keep going? Um, 
And I mean, of course, those questions are easy to answer. We do it because we don't want other people to experience what we have. Um, it's, it's not a luxury of being able to turn away once you become a victim of something like this. So how do we get people to willingly accept that this is the reality and it doesn't have to be the reality? Complacency doesn't mean that we have to agree permanently. Um, I think it's been such a gradual slide over the last 20 years that maybe people didn't see it coming to this extent that we would be inundated with such violence at such extent with such frequency. Um, but here we are and it's time to wake up and do something. And instead, I think people are feeling like it's too much, it's too overwhelming and they just can't handle the heartbreak. Um, which is puts us all in a difficult position because how do you, how do you affect change on something that's too painful to talk about? We have to have these uncomfortable conversations. Um, like you said, Kristen, we have to make the ones to bring the room, take all the air out of the room. We have to keep doing that because nothing else is working. This polite request approach has gone nowhere. People are still dying. People's lives are still being altered in ways they never, ever would wish every day. What I find interesting is, I mean, we do get tired, you know, I mean, the, and I don't think I'm any uh, more special or anything like that than anybody else. So I'm not trying to convey that at all. Uh, just, I just, whatever, this is what I do is uncomfortable conversations. I seem to do better with those than comfortable ones. <laughs> but, but we get tired. So what happens when we, because, um, you know, we still deal with our own depression. We're dealing with what we've been through. Um, and I'm really quick to not try to be a martyr because I come from a family of would-be martyrs and it's not an attractive place to be. And it means that it's all about you. It's not really about what you say you're fighting for. Um, but But we get tired. So what happens when those of us who dive into those uncomfortable conversations need help who is left to speak that's those were the questions that helen was asking in her article and these were the questions that um she and i had discussed that led to this bill from senator casey in showing that there isn't any resources for these people to go to especially when you've been impacted personally um Right. For the mental health care providers and first responders and medical caregivers, that's a whole other area where they need support and resources too. Because well, yep. that, yeah. Yeah. that vicarious I mean, trauma is adding up and taking a toll on them. Absolutely. Quickly. Yeah. Abs I mean, Jamie, that is such a powerful point that can't be forgotten. Not only is the vicarious trauma piling up, and we're seeing burnout, suicide, and addiction among physicians, mm -hmm. um, high suicide rates among EMTs and first responders. It's horrifying. It's horrifying. And not only that, clinicians aren't even properly 
trained or even understanding of this kind of trauma to effectively treat survivors of such kind of violence. And right. yeah. we know that in the survivor community, that's something that gets talked about very often is how a couple months into the, the therapy, the clinician's going to say, I'm not even sure how to help you. It's right. It, it's a devastatingly overwhelming experience. I am not a gun violence survivor. I'm a mass violence survivor. I do think there's some things that we understand about each other's trauma. However, right. there is a uniqueness to being a gun violence survivor as there is a uniqueness being to a survivor of terrorism or a survivor of domestic violence. So although there's some commonalities, there's some real unique differences and the people that are working with these survivors need to understand what they are so that they can help them. And maybe to your point, Jamie, we didn't see it coming and this has progressed so quickly to a point where we haven't even had time to get to, to, to have enough research to understand, to get people trained. Uh, maybe that's right. part of the problem. Uh, we yeah. are learning more and more about vicarious trauma, secondary trauma, and the brain every day. Um, so that we, we are catching up on the science side as well. Mm -hmm. but, but the reality is, is we're losing people, as you said earlier, to suicide, to addiction, right. as, as we're trying to figure it out. The, the one of the things that I that has also happened is that mass violence with firearm has shed light on gun violence, which has been an issue for a long time. And right. one of the, one of the meetings I was a part of that opened up my eyes was uh, in Boston. The, the mayor's office was having a committee advisory board on a one. They were calling it one, one Boston resilient. They were trying to mm -hmm. talk, they were trying to come up with a way that they could commemorate citywide resilience. So they assembled a group of people around a table, people from the uh, Massachusetts Office of Victims Assistance, some marathon survivors, and community members, community um, coalition leaders, and mental health professionals. And there was people in the room that were survivors. They had family members that died of gun violence on the same day as the marathon bombing. And they weren't able to get the treatment and the resources they needed because <sighs> the whole citywide resources were pulled to the marathon bombing. So and one of the, yeah, one of the other things we're seeing is that the mass violence incidents are also taking away resources from gun violence, which has been there longstanding. Right. And it's such a, it's such a massive undertaking to understand how do we get people inspired? How do we get the government, the Senate, the media, the, the majority of the people, the mental health professionals? <laughs> There's so many people we need to get on board and understanding the totality of this issue to make the kind of changes that we need to make to protect our children's futures and our own safety. Right. Yes. And you know what? You know, what's interesting is like you can inspire people. I mean, it is possible to still inspire people. And I'm saying this to listeners, not obviously to the two of you, um, even if you're exhausted, even if you're really good at caring about everybody else and really suck at self-care, <laughs> you know, you can still be someone that gets involved and uses even if it's just your voice or your well your voice on paper your voice 
you know, um, out of your mouth. I mean, you can still be someone that is inspired to help in some way. And I think what people, I think we feel so tired by the constancy of information that we're all just kind of, you know, putting up sort of a shield. I don't want to see sort of that monkey, you know, hands over your eyes, over your ears, over your mouth. And we're, we're seeing that so much, but you can still, even in that, be somebody that does something. Um, I had a friend of mine say the other day, well, I'm going to do this thing that she really believes in. I know I'm just one person. And it felt almost like those beginning conversations when people years ago, when people would talk about volunteering, well, I'm just one person. And somehow with all this rise in the having notoriety, chasing after whatever you think fame is going to get you, whatever that is, we've forgotten about how it really does just take one person caring. And that one person caring has the ability to affect change for thousands of people. I mean, look at this network and look at when I started it. Nobody cared about mental health. Nobody. And now it's this popular topic. So even I, in my little slice of the world, have seen things change. And that was just one person. Now it's 60. So I don't, it's whatever that is, whatever that tissue, that membrane, whatever it is that the one person you guys have, that needs to become the infection against all of this information that's out there. So I guess what I, I hope we can maybe find in this call is how do you start spreading that amongst what seems like a Mount Everest of, I don't want to hear about it. That's a great question. <laughs> it's a great question. I mean, Jamie, how do you stay inspired? It's that it's a great question. It's a hard question. Um, yep. I think, and, and, and this might sound more Debbie Downer than it really is, but part of what keeps me going is, is knowing how many people are affected every day. And, and, and it's the people like me, not just the people who have lost their lives, who have have an injury who it's it's that the trauma ripples so far out and and knowing that there are simple steps we could do in terms of providing mental health resources as an example making them more accessible more affordable getting more of them informed in trauma to deal with the people who need the help um i have to keep going because i see it it's right there i know that we can mm -hmm. do it we owe it to ourselves to do it. And I, I mean, at, at the real end of the day, I have my kids. I have my kids going to school and doing lockdown drills, um, just like the last 20 years worth of kids. And I've seen how that's turned out. The reactions coming out of uh, Saugus High School were heartbreaking, um, very similar to Santa Fe, and that they weren't really surprised that a shooting happened at their school. You know, they just were surprised that it was today is the only mm -hmm. thing that's different. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we don't even know the long-term impact yet of the kids that no. have grown up over we're the just, last 20 plus years. Right. We're but just starting to see. Right? Yeah. And right. it's, um, I, mean, I don't think what, it's promising. 
for one. No, I, don't think I mean, look at look one of our one of our podcasters, James Asher. He just commented on a post that we put out in our network group on Facebook. He's 15. He said my school was shut down twice yesterday because there were threats of a shooting. Oh. This is a high school in Michigan. Right. Oh. He's 15. And you know what? You know what it is. You know what that kind of stuff has inspired him to do? Have a show. Talk about oh. it. Wow. You know, it's interesting. I circulated on Facebook. There was a son. He's the son of somebody I know from Parkland, Marjorie Stoneham High School. And his he was not in the high school, but his sister was. And he wrote a poem about what it was like waiting to see if she... I'm going to get emotional. We what it was like to yeah. see waiting to see if his sister was going to come home from school that day. And I recirculated <laughs> that out because it's, it's such a palpable pain. It's, it's imaginable. Right. And Jamie, to your yeah. point, you see yeah. it, it is right there. And what I would like to say to the, to the masses, to the listeners, to tell your friends is it is right there. Like you we all have to see it. It is right there. It is happening. You know, in every, I, I read one of the Saugus reports where somebody said, we live in such a great area. I didn't think it could happen here. Right? Don't you hear that after every mass shooting? <laughs> after every yes. mass shooting. And it's, and I, I wanted to yeah. go back to the Saugus high school just for a minute, Jamie, because I know earlier yeah. you talked about the media mm -hmm. and whatever reason that day I was home, I was working on stuff from home and it came across my computer screen. So I watched the live media coverage. Oh. I was very disheartened by the way media I felt was exploiting the victims. I mean, doesn't, they, doesn't they were, it read that way? It, it, it feels, I mean, they were, first of all, there's, there's a couple suggestions that have come out of so many communities and one is let's start calling them family assistance centers instead of reunification centers because some right. people aren't going to be reunified right and that's a sting that never stops that's a exactly. sting that never stops and people have learned you and i both know people that have learned of their loved ones passing because they sat at a reunification center and every person was reunified except, except for them, for them. Or yeah. the last 11, I mean, there was families from the borderline grill that talked about this happening. Mm -hmm. They talked about the reunification center constantly with Saugus. There's two young people that lost their lives that day. Those families were not reunified. Right. So there's some suggestions just to help, you know, just to, just to help a little bit. I see we, so many simple opportunities like that. Simple yeah. opportunities. Thank you. That's a but but my point is, you know, the way that the the media was covering it, there is a sensationalism about it that's getting people Absolutely. to watch. But it's not getting <clears throat> people to think about, you know, the long term impact. It's funny because Nidia Han, who's a local reporter for the Philadelphia mm -hmm. area, who I got to know through, we both did an event called Speakers Who Dare. I actually sent her a text that day. And I said, um, and she was great. She's, you know, re replied and said, thank you. But I said something like, you know, if, oh, here we go. Mm. Hey, if your station's covering the school shooting today in California, please 
have them remind the viewers that the current events often cue or trigger survivors from past incidents and that they should seek support. And I could tell you that people are working hard to make sure the media is getting trauma-informed and learning to be victim-centric. Mm -hmm. Can you please lead the charge? Let's call it trauma-competent reporting. Right, and right. she said, thank you. <laughs> she said, thank you, but I'm not even sure it was covered here. Right, because so, that's the reality, because yes. Philly has so much gun violence of its own. Uh, we've been out report. of control. Yeah, it's been out of control in Philadelphia. For the, I mean, and there's some, you know, I think there's, I think people time. are feeling that there's some political. There, there are always behind that as so well. many factors. Yeah. There are always so many factors. One thing I wanted to touch on because it's, it's really chilling. And you, you mentioned that one of the, the people, the reports in Saiwa said, you know, we, we never thought it could happen here. We live in such a nice community. And I mentioned that we hear that sentiment so frequently, especially in terms of the school shootings. But what chills me about that still to this day, like 20 years later, I believe it was in 2000, the rapper Eminem released a song called The Way I Am. And I never heard the original version. Gosh, I don't know until how many years later because it was edited in Denver because it referenced Columbine. What he said was, middle america now it's a tragedy now it's so sad to see an upper class city having this happening because his point was that this has been happening in communities of right. color for decades and decades and no one has cared but suddenly with columbine you had 12 teenagers and one student killed in their school in their upper middle class very well repu reputable school it happens there and now it's noteworthy and what we're finding now is that I hate to say this, but it's the how much attention can the story bring? Only two students were killed in this incident. We're not going to report on that here. There's, yep. there's, news, there's news bureaus making those decisions based on which shooting is newsworthy enough to attract attention. When the reality is every single life, if it was one of ours, if it was their brother or their sister or their 11 month old child in Philadelphia, then it would be a news story. Um, and I think maybe that's how we inspire people is reminding them how close it is. Maybe get them to look around and see who do you already know who's been affected by somebody like this? How many degrees away are you? Because some people might feel far removed until they realize that their cousin was at the Las Vegas um, Route 91 festival, and they just never knew. You know, I think we need to open people's eyes to the other side of it. It's not just the news and the notoriety, it's what happens when the news stops. Where do these people go? Yep. What do these people do? Right. How can we help them? Um, I think a lot of people are hesitant to take action in terms of a political grab because the second amendment argument is very well contested on both sides and a lot of people feel like it's a waste of time but what's definitely not a waste of time is to invest in more mental health care in terms of the preventative and the reactive measures and maybe that's where we get people right if you feel right. like you can't help the cause then be one of the helpers be one of the people who helps make it better you know? Know, absolutely. One of the things that happens that 
we lose sight of in this, the fallout of these shootings long-term, um, like you said, are the chronic medical conditions. We don't talk about them being related to the shooting. We talk about them like, oh, they have a chronic medical condition. Mm-hmm. And we're not talking about addiction and other maladaptive coping behaviors that Depression. cause significant acting out and stress and ongoing mental health issues in people's lives. Absolutely. You know, maybe now we're talking about a suicide being related to a trauma, but there was a time when we weren't. And right. And and not even all victims or survivors, because people like to be referred to as, you know, one or the other sometimes, but not all people even know to identify that if, you know, you become an alcoholic, 10, there's a high, there's a high functionality. There's a functional relationship between substance use disorders and trauma. And that's well Mm -hmm. researched and proven, but the knowledge that yes, you can survive a high school shooting and become an alcoholic at 30 and they're connected. And a lot of people don't know that they're connected. So we're not always talking about the impact of these traumas in a way that's helpful for the whole world to be understanding this picture in a broader sense. I think right. it's, it's because it goes away from what we are so used to getting now, which is instant gratification, instant information. And mm-hmm. we're so used to having things instantaneously that the idea of 30 years of help needed and more for Mm -hmm. something and that it takes time and that it takes living through your life and going through all the other experiences that you're going to experience as a human being while this thing that you lived through colored all of that Mm -hmm. that takes time and patience Right. right and that goes so against what we're what we've been trained to expect. Right. And the the compensation, like Jamie was saying earlier, the compensation just isn't there long term and it's not affordable long term too. I mean, we we both know uh, an Aurora survivor, a family family member of a survivor who's had long term, you know, she's paralyzed. There's been substance use issues. There's long term consequences that Mm -hmm. we're still trying to figure out how to fund and get treated. And, you know, that's one of the conversations that also needs, I don't know, maybe the financial impact will get the attention of the government. I'm not sure, but I mean, it's, it's over $300 billion and the impact that it has on the cost of our healthcare system as well. That intersection can't be overlooked, but people don't want to talk about it because those conversations are uncomfortable. When we say, look, the people who can't afford your insurance plans are the ones who are ending, who are getting shot and needing all this time in the ICU and these critical surgeries. And sometimes they don't survive. Right. And those right. bills still have to be paid for. Right. We need to have these conversations. Well, um, not only that, I just read yesterday that uh, our medical care in the U.S. is declining, like our our rank worldwide and in, in our ability to provide good care is declining. I can't even pretend to be surprised. <laughs> no, it's is massive. massive. They, our, our, our chronicles, our, our hospitals are chronically understaffed and our nurses are overburdened. 
the cost of care is inaccessible for a lot of people. So by the time they go in, it's a more serious issue than it could have been. And right. th- I mean, there are a, a ton of factors, but as far as the behavioral health side, it's almost impossible to find appropriate or proper or adequate care. I would say for the majority of the country, not every state has a huge network of trauma-informed therapists. Right. Um, right. We can find doctors, orthopedic surgeons, neurologists in, in most major cities, but most major cities are still going to have a shortage of trauma therapists. So then what happens when you get two or 3,000 people who need that care? You know, and I've made this, I've made this statement on a a couple episodes and I'm just going to keep making it because it's worth repeating. I know a survivor from the Cedarville Rancheria shooting who in their community, there was only one mental health professional Mm -hmm. who was tasked with treating the shooter. So, So the survivors and the injured and the bereaved families had no, had nobody that they felt they could go to when they were looking on the internet and for books and for no. resources to get themselves the support they needed because, you know, getting care, they didn't feel it was accessible to your point about. And, it, and I think I interviewed a friend of mine who works in the juvenile justice system and he used the word trauma competent, which I'm like, I'm totally oh. stealing that. And I'm using that all the time. Cause trauma, I like it. Yeah. Trauma informed at this point, there's lots of people that say they're trauma informed, but, and, but we, we want trauma, trauma competent. competent. That should be a show. It should be. Right. That, yeah. <laughs> so that's a whole, it should be that's its a own podcast. Trauma yeah. competent. There would be an endless number of topics that could be discussed on that show. It's, it's, and it's funny. So one of the things that I was inspired by through my own experience was to, as a mental health clinician who went through a, a mass violence attack, I I'm teaching a graduate level class. It's called community intensive trauma intensive communities. And my focus is understanding, being competent, understanding the unique niche of these trauma intensive communities and how as a clinician, you need to prepare yourself to be able to, to work with them and treat them. And you, you can't just be trauma informed. It's not enough. Go ahead in as a right. trauma-informed clinician and tell somebody you understand. <laughs> and yeah, not, and watch, watch that watch that reaction you get. Yeah, right. PTSD. It makes me think of uh, yeah, it makes me think of someone going, okay, great, like a like an elder teacher or counselor that's been doing this forever, looking at someone walking in saying, "I'm trauma-informed," and that teacher's saying, "Great, now let's work on you being trauma competent." Oh. Right. Or, or right, imagine right, somebody right. saying, imagine somebody saying, um, you know, oh, I can't imagine what you've been through. Or that's horrendous. Like I've that's heard what, it so many times. Right. But all that says wow. is, you know, what what that says to the victim is, oh my gosh, what you're saying to me is overwhelming me and I don't know what to do. Right. 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 Or, or saying as soon as you stop. Yeah, as soon as, or saying as soon as you stop crying about this, you know you'll have moved on. You know how many times I've heard that. I I just want to smack somebody, but I'm like, yeah. you know what? Okay, I'm glad that you don't want to talk about sexual abuse or mass violence or 
domestic violence or what, you know, that it makes you so uncomfortable that, that you could come close to tears in a conversation that you don't want to talk about it, but do not tell me how I'm holding back my life, not being resilient, not living life as I should or could because I talk about these things, but that, that is what I hear. Those are the things I still hear today from people that I just go, I just, I just like, I, I have a, my own film that goes over me of, okay, not going to continue a conversation with this person. I think, I think there's some promise in, in the newer classes. Um, like I have a friend, she's getting her master's right now. And one of their projects is a trauma informed workshop where all the students in the class have to interview three different types of trauma survivors. And then the class collectively discusses them so that they can all Mm -hmm. get a first-person account of, I mean, examples of childhood sexual assault, um, gun violence, uh, a lost parent, parent who's lost their child, domestic violence, on and on, all these different types of trauma, because yeah, to say you're trauma-informed isn't enough. You actually need to understand the difference between the types of trauma and what those long-term effects are gonna look like on the other side. And there's just simply not enough of that. but yeah, that definitely needs to be its own show. <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, you know, maybe in if you look at a cycle of someone's advocacy, because obviously it's a need that burns in you to, you know, be of service to others to help lessen their pain. And it also is part of lessening your own pain or understanding it, um, having more compassion and so on. I think at some point on a journey, if you've been doing this a long time, you you become someone that you're not out there trying to um, stop it anymore because it's going to continue. At least that's what I learned. I'm not out there trying to stop these things from happening. Um, maybe I was in the beginning. I don't remember at this point, but now it's more, I look at it. I look, I re- reference Victor Frankl a lot where I think it's more about helping someone through their own suffering. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to take away someone's suffering. I'm not trying to make them feel better to get them out of a depression to, I'm literally just at this point, I want to be there and be, you know, one person, this is right. This always happens with Amy every single time we do a show. Um, And I don't cry a lot. My listeners know this, but um, anyway, to, just be able to be there with another person going through their suffering uh, because that's part of that human connection that mm-hmm. we're all starving for. We're all starving for that. And we're such an isolated society um, that now for me, it's just being shoulder to shoulder with another person. Right. Right. Thank you, Kristen. It is the connection amongst survivors and in survivor groups and circles that helps people feel not so alone or lonely in their, um, in their trauma. And the loneliness of trauma is one of the things that's most detrimental to people. And that's not having people to connect with that 
really can speak the same language that you have about your adversity or whatever it is that, that, that you've been through. And there's something about the connection with other survivors that helps people know that, A, you're not alone. And it's somebody that you just instinctively feel like you can listen to because mm -hmm. you, you know that they aren't trying to make you feel better. They're not trying to take your suffering away. They're not trying to all you just you speak the same language so you can go into those relationships and you can learn how to put language to your own experience you can feel hopeful and, and inspired that there isn't there is a path to healing by seeing somebody else who's been through it um so the connection becomes a really vital part of healing and i i think to your point i like the idea of, of having the conversation that we can't you know, we, we, we can't take away people's pain and suffering, but, but what we can do is be aware that maybe there's things I can do in activism or being educated or exercising my right to vote to help make it harder for people to, to do these things. I find it shocking that not every state, I believe, has adopted the red flag law yet. Right. Um, and that's that at a minimum would save lives uh, um so i many. think they did that on there was a special they talked about that on 60 minutes the other night yeah it was yeah that was just the other day they discussed that yeah. um yeah. With, with regards to colorado sheriffs and saying yes. they weren't going to comply with orders right. which is uh, that's wrong for a lot of reasons and i won't right. get into them but right right i think as far as a, a takeaway, like you were saying, like what can you do with your voice or with your what what you have to offer? We all bring different things to the table. Like for me, my activism is going to continue to be multi-focused. The need for survivor support and advocacy for victims and survivors, not just of gun violence, but of all trauma really, um, because there is a universal bond that we share knowing what that weight feels like later in life. Um, but also to, to, to help create the change, like, no, we can't stop these things from happening, but we can work. I am going to be knocking on hundreds of thousands of doors over the next year, trying to reach people to change the composition of our legislature here in Pennsylvania, as well as in Washington, DC, to get people who will do what we actually need them to do, which is vote and act as a leader who is a member of the human race, who has compassion, mm -hmm. who understands that these are their sons and their daughters out there in these communities with these problems, whatever the problems are, addiction, mental health, physical disability, these all are things that can stem from a result of gun violence. And I can't stop fighting for that as, as disheartening as it is to wake up every day and see the real-time statistics being updated. I can't prevent everything, but as Kristen was saying, I, I can be there for people in the Rebels Project. Amy, you remember as, where, as well, we, we volunteer to provide peer support for victims of mass violence because we all know how it feels. And just to be able to be there for someone, to maybe be off, offering some glimmer of hope through the piece that I shared in that book, If I Don't Make It, I Love You. Maybe that's a book that somebody will pick up when they're in a community that has no resources and they say, man, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get up. How do these people do it? Well, here's a right. book. Maybe, maybe I'll find something in here. 
some words from someone who's lived it that might help me in the interim. And so that's what drives me to keep going. And it's been a rough year, but as much as a, a pessimist as I am, I really have to say that I'm hopeful for next year. I don't say that about most years. So <laughs> that's saying something. I think people, as tired as they are, it's driven them to some state of silence in, in, in some respects. But I think once they're able to vote on these issues, um, I hope that their feelings will come out um, the way that ours do when we go to vote. Thank so you. that we can actually start to make real progress on all of the facets mm -hmm. of this issue. Thank you for not giving up. Well, thank you for being one of the people who's there to lift me up when we need it. Just about your book, I just want to say that it makes me sad on a deep level that you got no responses from mm -hmm. anybody. Did you, you said you sent them to everybody in the Senate? Yeah, all 100 senators. All 100 senators. It makes me really disheartened and sad that not one could dictate a letter to a staffer. Right. Or even it, one tweet. Right. Or one tweet. It, it, it reminds could take me 30 of, seconds. Yeah. It reminds me of John Stewart's plea to Congress, right? Mm. For the 9 11. Um, right. For their fund. Yes. For their 9 exactly. 11 fund. And it's just disappointing and a, a little bone would go a long way, you know, right. to, to the people that are out there um, and, behind, and behind our local politicians trying to lead the charge. Well, let's flag them all on this right. podcast. I mean, how many, <laughs> yeah. how many times can you, you know, so, between the three of us, we can, what you can tag um, 10 people on Twitter. So that's 30. I'll ask yeah. the rest of the podcasters to share it. And, yeah, you know, we could, we could literally make a list. That. It's yeah. yeah, and fun. and tag it. The hashtag we've been using is uh, hashtag DC Book Club, and you'll see that it's mostly author-initiated tweets and no politician responses using that. So, right. well, every one of these politicians, I would imagine, has a Twitter handle. They all do. They all mm -hmm. do. If not them, it's their staffer. Some of them run their own. Representative Brendan Boyle. Right. I know. I was able to contact him directly through his Twitter. And he co-signed co that bill in less than eight hours Wow! I asked him. So awesome. some people are sympathetic and some people are not. Some people have right. heard about it. In the case of the senators, they've all heard about it now. And their silence speaks volumes um, on where we're at in terms of how we're dealing with the impact of gun violence. Not only are we ignoring the causes, but we're ignoring the repercussions as well. Right. And so. the repercussions, I mean, we've stated throughout the show and we've kind of went on a tangent about all of them, whether it's societal safety, what's happening to our, you know, young generation of students, what's happening when resources are pooled across communities, the long-term impact of trauma, the impact on the physicians and the nurses. I mean, it's pretty massive, the impact. It, it, it's not it's not, there's a victim, let's mourn for a victim and move on. It right. is, it's, it's, it's way bigger than that. Um, I just want to thank you guys for hopping on and having a conversation. And if we can all, you know, 
keep lifting each other up and help inspire other people to continue this very important conversation. It's really, it's all of our children. It's all of our future. Right. Um, we, we will can, together. Can something yeah. Something that I find fascinating and I know we're closing, but people even anesthetized for whatever reason, because I'm not calling out senators either. They're human beings too. People that are anesthetized and there are good reasons in our society to be anesthetized, really good reason. But people that are crave people who have passion, they don't even know why sometimes. If you're someone who you just have that passion and it spills out over you, even when you're exhausted, but you still have that connectedness, that um, care for something greater than you, that belief in helping others, that is so attractive. Even people who say they hate it or push against it are attracted to that. So if I can say to any listener, cultivate that, because that is what's going to get you to galvanize other people. They're going to want to be around you. They're going to be inspired by what it is you do, even if they don't understand why you do it. And it tickles something in them to go do that, even in a small way themselves. And that's a very measured, it always works way of helping one person at a time to do something. So um, if in the society that so cares about attention, attention, I want attention for me, 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 me. Well, guess what? The best attention that you could ever, ever get for yourself is to speak with conviction and be passionate about something that helps others. That's going to get you more of the kind of attention you really want than anything and, else. And speaking in a way where it's safe for people to listen. We can't right, exactly. be shouting at people. Exactly. And- shaming people. No, you have to come from that well. Exactly. Exactly. That's why we talked about the education and, you know, but but I notice that if I'm on with someone and they want to tell me, oh, all the ways that I should be doing different things with this network to make more money and and I'm, and I'm like, I know why this person is so attracted to working with me because Mm -hmm. they want some this thing Mm -hmm. that they've lost. They think it's because they're going to come tell me all the stuff I need to do. And I just sit back with, no, they think that that's what this is. But really what it is, is they're missing a lot of that thing. That even when I'm freaking exhausted, which when you said, Jamie, that this year has been hard, this year has been freaking hard. And I'm hopeful for 2022. But but that's what they resonate with is that, that I still have this. And, And so this, is something we all have. You just got to poke in there and get it. And you have to be someone that raises other people to go for this too. Right. I think we all have to take turns lifting each other yeah. up when needed and stoke those embers um, when necessary. Absolutely. I think that's incredibly well said. Like that's the best thing we can do is Absolutely. to keep doing, doing what we're called to do because it helps people. And we don't that's want, right. we don't want, you know, we don't want the status quo to stay as is. We want mm. things to change so that we need that needle to move. We need we more joy, you know, and on your point, my, yeah. my closing thought, Jamie, is in terms of being hopeful. I'm actually leaving this afternoon to head to Nice, France for the International Victims Congress. 
where 700 people, lawmakers, survivors, victims, and um, professionals are gathering from around the world to talk about the impact of trauma as a, as a, and terrorism. So these conversations Good. are literally happening globally as well as and locally and people are starting to listen and you know places like the UN are starting to listen to Americans talk about mm -hmm. their their struggles because being such a civilized society we're seen as somebody that has a healthcare system we don't right. we're not in as much of a humanitarian crisis as other countries but one of the things that's being discovered is that the impact of trauma is the same right so you know, it, it is a global conversation and on a local level, you know, and then on a statewide level and then on a community level and then in our own homes, if we all start somewhere and continue the conversations, hopefully we can inspire enough people to be talking about it. We can lift each other up when they're down, find ways to stoke the embers and um, more importantly, knock on doors, share your opinions with conviction so that we can get the change we need. And I hear children I'm, and dogs beckoning in the background. Yeah, that <laughs> was right. just one that was just one little child greeting. We love um, children and dogs on this show. So, absolutely. Yeah. Oh Thanks. my god, he, yes. He just he thinks that that it's great. <clears throat> I mean, Amy, I am so glad personally that you are there to help represent the voice of the American struggle with oh, thank you. Oh, thank god traveled and met with so many communities and spoken so extensively on it i am so relieved that you will be one of the people who will be there i wish you, you a very safe trip thank you um, and thank you so much for um being able to put this together so last minute yeah and thanks for hopping on absolutely, absolutely. it's my pleasure to help always that's what thank your little person right? your little human for sharing you with us this morning <laughs> oh he's always happy to share He's a helper too. And it was wonderful to meet you, Jamie. You, I, I'm sure we'll be in touch again, Kristen. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. For this edition of the Trauma Impact, thank you so much, Kristen and Jamie, for your insights and, and contributions today. Very much appreciated. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Without good intentions, I heat up and act on my emotions. Thanks so much for listening to Mental Health News Radio. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and hundreds of other podcast apps. Or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com. If you have a question or would like to be a guest, become a podcaster on our network, or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air, please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com. Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Don't be surprised when I don't hate on you.